This is Fred Allen in New York. I know you've all been waiting for the winners of the I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest, so here they are. The first prize... Wake up, Mr. Benny. This isn't a dream now. The first prize, $2,500 in victory bonds, goes to Mr. Carol P. Craig, Sr., 735 Radcliffe Avenue, Pacific uh, Palisades, California. The second prize, $1,500 in victory bonds, goes to Mr. Charles S. Doherty. Look, it's one of his contest letters. Oh, you mean the I Can't Stand Jack Benny contest? Yes, and there's a little notation on it that says... This letter was written by Carol P. Craig, Sr., and won first prize. First prize? Oh, Ronnie, I wondered what the winning letter was right. Read it, please. All right. It says, I can't stand Jack Benny because he fills the air with boasts and brags and obsolete, obnoxious gags. The way he plays his violin is music's most obnoxious sin. His cowardice alone, indeed, is matched by his obnoxious greed. And all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious ways. Now, you know, Benita, that's very clever. Yes, it has such a good thought behind it. Yes. And all the things that he portrays show up my own obnoxious way. You know, Benita, maybe the fellow that wrote this letter is right. The things that we find fault with in others are the same things that we tolerate in ourselves. That's so true, Ronnie. It certainly is. I got to tell you a marvelous radio story. For years and years, we always listened to Jack Benny. Who didn't? Really the greatest, I think, single performer on radio that ever was. I mean, just absolutely brilliant. He could take Ten minutes of dead air and make you fall on your face laughing. And if you remember, Ronald Coleman was always the next door neighbor of the Bennies. Mm-hmm. And the Bennies, who were so chintzy and cheap and, you know, never had enough of anything, were always going over to the Colemans to borrow a cup of sugar or peg or something. So, anyway, lap dissolve a few years. This shows you how much in love with radio I was. I did a film with Ronald Coleman, and he and his wife asked my wife and myself over to dinner. And we knew where Jack Benny lived. We'd always known where Jack Benny lived. one of the sort of landmarks of Hollywood. So we got in the car, all dressed up, went down, went next door to Jack Benny. Went up to the front door next door to Jack Benny, rang the bell and said, Mr. and Mrs. Coleman are expecting us because they didn't live there at all. <laughs> Not at all. Nor did we know where the hell they lived. We finally had to call the Screen Actors Guild. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait Instead of a big, ugly glass picture tube, you saw the performers in your own mind. You painted your own big-as-life version of each moment with that loving, creative brush, Imagination. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 134. My name is James Scully. Tonight we spend our holidays with one of the most beloved figures of the 20th century, Jack Benny. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform, 
and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is the beautiful John Williams rendition of Somewhere in My Memory. It's a fitting epitaph for the golden age of radio at the holidays. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 New York City, is out now. Go to burninggotham.com for more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. In this special closed-circuit broadcast to the managers and staffs of all CBS stations, Mr. Paley has asked that he might be the first to speak to you. Gentlemen, Mr. Paley. I have asked to speak first so that I might have the pleasure of introducing Jack Benny. In a few moments, we'll pick up Jack Benny and Amos and Andy, too, speaking in Hollywood. But before we do that, I want to take the opportunity to say something else. It is in many ways, I think, the most significant thing I could say here, and that CBS, in fact, can say to the world. It is not about the developments of the past few weeks which have happily resulted in bringing Benny to CBS so soon after Amos and Andy. We all can see what this means to our Sunday night schedule and to our competitive strength and prestige as a network. But I'm thinking of something more important. It's the network Jack Benny is coming to. The network we are today. CBS is now the leader. Today, not tomorrow. That is what I take deepest pride in as I talk to you. In the fact that CBS today, all of you, already have the largest audiences in all radio, day and night. The largest individual audiences, the largest average audiences. This is an achievement of which you can be particularly proud. On December 23, 1948, CBS chairman William Paley and CEO Frank Stanton broadcast a special closed-circuit press conference to their affiliates and staff. I think that it couldn't have happened as it has in just this past year without the accomplishments of the CBS package program operation. The move was to announce that Jack Benny was switching his program from NBC to CBS. The change would begin with the first broadcast of the new year. We developed our own, our Godfrey are my friend Irma, our suspense. When Paley signed Jack Benny in November, he'd convinced sponsor American Tobacco to make the jump to CBS by agreeing to pay the cigarette giant $3,000 per week for every ratings point lost after the migration. past year increased 14% on the whole, while NBC's program ratings dropped 7% in the same period. The move signaled that Paley was intent on not just equaling Benny's audience on NBC, but growing it. We intend to keep for you.
In December of 1948, Benny's last month on NBC, his program rating was 25.8. His first episode rating for CBS, 28.3. It was the most listened to show in the U.S. Jack had a basic philosophy, if I may divert here for a moment, that Certainly. as I analyze it, it was obvious that this was his philosophy. The bigger he could make the supporting people that worked with him on the show, the bigger it made the Jack Benny show, and the bigger it made Jack Benny. Now, this is a leaf that I don't think any other comedian ever took out of Jack's book, and it was so sound and successful that I'm surprised somebody else didn't pick it up, too. But that was Jack. That was the generosity and the thoughtfulness and the great showmanship that was reflected in Jack's operation in all the years he was on the air. While you were talking to Rochester, a gentleman dropped in to see you. He's from Washington. Oh, from Washington? Hmm? Yes, my name is Vernon Clark, and I'm from the United States Treasury Department. The, uh, Treasury Department? Jack, get up off your knees. He's here to give you something. <laughs> Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean, I'm happy. I mean, what is it, Mr. Clark? Huh? Well, Jack, I'm here to thank you on behalf of the Treasury Department for the motion picture short you made to spur on the Opportunity Drive. Well, thank you very much. And I think the title of this picture, The Spirit of 49, is very appropriate. And when it is released in all the theaters in the country, I'm sure it'll be very successful in stimulating the sale of savings bonds. Well, I hope so, too. And by the way, Mr. Clark, I can appreciate the responsibility you have in the Treasury Department because uh, I happen to be the treasurer of the Beverly Hills Beavers Club. <laughs> That's fine, Jack, because I'm going to present you with something that you can keep in your Beavers Clubhouse. And what's that, Mr. Clark? Well, it's a citation and a Sidney Williams replica of the covered wagon, which is symbolic of the spirit of 49 and is a symbol of this year's Opportunity Drive. Thank you very much, Mr. Clark. It's a great honor to receive. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, starting next week at the same time, our summer replacement will be a great Lucky Strike program called Your Hit Parade on Parade. Be sure to listen in as I'll be playing second violin. <laughs> On today's broadcast, you met nearly everyone associated with my program. But before we leave the air, I'd like, like to also thank my two sound men, Jim Murphy and Gene Twombly, my engineer, George Foster, my CBS contact man, Lucian Davis, to Bert Scott. Oh, Jack, and Jack, Hillard... uh, you better speed it up. We're running late. Oh, yes, that's my producer. I was just going to introduce him, Hillard well, Mark. Thank you for mentioning it, Jack, but you'll still have to pay me. I know, I know. And now my entire cast joins me in wishing each and every one of you a very pleasant summer. Good night. Ladies and gentlemen, the United States Treasury Department is conducting an intensified drive, the Opportunity Drive, to sell more United States savings bonds. Benny ended his 48-49 season in May on a high note. His combined rating for his last three months on NBC was 22.7. His combined rating for his first three months on CBS was 25.8. And be sure to hear the new Lucky Strike summer replacement, your hit parade on parade, starting next Sunday in the Jack Benny time slot. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
when I first joined CBS, actually, working the early morning shift, I opened up the network at 6 o'clock in the morning. But believe it or not, I never even knew how to make a station break when I got <laughs> to the network because all I did was do football games in college. Other fellows made the station breaks, and I didn't know anything at all about radio. And Later on, they switched us over, and um, Bert and I primarily handled the dance band shows, which was your 11 to 1 Prime time, let us say. That's right. Instead of like the Tonight Show, you did dance bands in New York. Sometimes you'd, they would switch out to Chicago or San Francisco or Los Angeles, but primarily most of your great bands were playing in and around New York City. We used to get a kick out of alternating doing Benny Goodman and Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller. Look sharp, feel sharp, be sharp. Use Gillette Blue Blades where the sharpest edges ever honed. Gillette's Cavalcade of Sports is on the air. From Ebbett Field in Brooklyn, Gillette presents the exclusive play-by-play report of the fourth game of the 1949 World Series between the New York Yankees and Brooklyn Dodgers. Good afternoon, baseball fans everywhere. This is Mel Allen with Red Barber, greeting you for the Gillette Safety Razor Company, maker of world-famous Gillette razors, blades, and shaving creams. Yes, and it's because so many of you fans use these products. By the time Mel Allen broadcast Game 4 of the 1949 World Series at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn on October 8th, the world was in turmoil. The Yankees would win that day and take the series four games to one. But people's attention was turned towards world politics. This series, there's a big hand for all these Dodger stars of 1916. And Miss Gladys Gooding is playing all Lang Syne. Jeff Pepper, Knapp Rucker, Zach Wheat, Otto Miller, Chief Myers, Rube Marquard. Boy, names to conjure with as you look back through baseball history. And those who were unable to attend today, Jack Coombs, now baseball coach at Duke University, Duster Mails, now doing uh, work on the West Coast, Fred Merkel, first baseman, now living in Daytona Beach, Florida. No longer living, our manager Wilbert Robinson of that 16 team, Ed Appleton, a pitcher. The Communist People's Republic of China was formed on October 1st and recognized by the USSR the next day. The Democratic Republic of East Germany was formed on October 7th. On October 14th, 10 Communist Party USA leaders were sentenced to jail time. Two days later, the Greek Civil War ended with a communist surrender. And on October 24th, the cornerstone of the United Nations headquarters was laid in New York. Who won the two-to-one decision passed on last year, and Sherry Smith, who pitched for the Dodgers in that game, also passed along recently. And now the lineups for today's game for the New York Yankees. Bill Rizzuto leading off, playing shortstop, hitting second, and playing first base, Tommy Henry, batting third. As 1949's holiday season approached, India adopted a constitution while the Labour government was defeated in Australian federal elections. A growing Red Scare was now deeply embedded in the media. Alger Hiss's second perjury trial began in November, while Mahatma Gandhi's assassins were executed, and Chinese Communist troops continued their march to Taiwan. Members of the media had been claiming there were potential Communist cells in the entertainment industry for more than two years. Radio writer Don Quinn expressed his feelings at the time. 
you said that this was uh, I didn't have to answer a question. Well, you don't have to listen to this answer either. But, oh. <laughs> but uh, there was a recent blast in the newspaper by, I think, Senator McCarran, charging oh. the that the Radio Writers Guild was red-dominated. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Well, I think it is pure hogwash. Senator McCarran is a politician, and all politicians will do almost anything for a vote or a headline or to perpetuate themselves in office, and I think this charge is pure nonsense. I've known these writers for many, many years, almost a great many of them personally, neither in council meetings or membership meetings has politics ever arisen. Oh, really? It's one of the two taboo subjects. The other is quality of radio shows because other authors, your friends, are present. We don't discuss each other's shows. Oh, yeah. And, and you do uh, not discuss politics? We do not discuss politics except where legislation is pending concerning the welfare and status of writers in general. Oh, yes. This is the only thing the Guild is interested in is the status of writers and their welfare. And the fact that there are probably, as in all organizations where you have six or seven hundred members, there are probably a few communists. But they certainly do not dominate the Guild. As a matter of fact, I don't think I know any. And I know a lot of these men personally. Mm -hmm. In the first place, the chances of a subversive attitude or line or script reaching the air are highly remote. Not many writers are communists because they are independent thinkers and the Communist Party does not welcome independent thinkers. These are individuals. Granted that they're all shades of political opinions, and a great many of them are liberals. This does not make them communists in my mind, because I'm a liberal myself. To get a subversive line on the air after going through production men, advertising men, mimeograph girls, engineers, uh, network authorities, continuity acceptance, this would require a collusion on the part of all people, which would be utterly fantastic. Yes. And I think to get uh, communistic ideas, either on the screen or on the radio, are very remote. He was the catalyst. He was still, no matter what they may say, oh, did you hear Phil Harris on the Jack Benny show? Did you hear Don Wilson or Rochester or Dennis Day or Mary Livingston or Mel Blank or Frank Nelson, any of the people? Did you hear them on the Jack Benny show? He was the one who was the catalyst who moved the whole show, and it was still, he was the star of the show. Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson.
Ladies and gentlemen, around this time of year, Jack Benny goes through a rather peculiar annual routine. He takes inventory of all the commodities in his pantry. As we look in, Rochester and Jack are checking off the items. Two cans of corned beef hash. Two cans of corned beef hash. Four bottles of olives. Rochester, slow down. I can't write that fast. <laughs> Mr. Benny, I can't understand why you take inventory every fall. You run this house just like a grocery store. I do not. I just... Uh-oh. I broke the point of this pencil. Where's the pencil sharpener? In the cash register. <laughs> oh, yeah. Darn it, I hit the 60-cent key instead of no sale. Now my books won't balance. Well, let's get on with the inventory, Rochester. Yes, sir. Six cans of peas. Six cans of peas. Five cans of corn. Five cans of corn. 436 cans of pork and beans. <laughs> 430... Rochester, how come we got so many cans of pork and beans? Don't you remember? Mr. Paley threw those in to clinch the deal. <laughs> oh, yes, one for each station. <laughs> now, continue, Rochester. Two bottles of vanilla extract. Two bottles of vanilla extract. One bottle of Lydia Pinkham's. <laughs> To take advantage of capital gains laws, Jack Benny had formed his holdings into a corporation and sold it to CBS for $2.26 million. Benny opened the fall 1949 season by taking stock of his pantry. Oh, say, boys. What is it, Rochester? When we come to the toothpicks, let's just estimate. The October 2nd program got a rating of 20.3. Okay for the plain ones, but the colored ones will count. I don't think that anybody, a comedian or an actor of any kind, says to himself at any time, I think I'm gonna develop a style. I don't think he would know how to do that. I think you just find it. Innately, there's something that you do that you find out works for you. Some comedians talk very fast. They go from one joke to another joke to another joke, maybe topical humor. Now, I discovered when I first started to talk on the stage that that would not have been my style. My style was to talk on a subject and stay on the subject. We never did anything that we thought was going to last. We never framed anything. We never started anything that we said. For instance, I've never gone to my writers and they never went to me and came to me and said, Let's make you a stingy character. Let's make Love and Room your theme song. Let's have a feud between you and Fred Allen. See, if we'd have framed all of that ahead of time, it would have never worked out. It always started by an accident. By accident, we wrote a couple of stingy jokes, and then they got big laughs, so we each week or every third week, we would put in a few stingy jokes, and before I knew it, I was a stingy man. The voice of John L. Lewis. The United Mine Workers of America are instructed to resume immediately the mining and production of coal to continue until midnight, Wednesday, November 30, 1949. The National Broadcasting Company's News and Special Events Department brings you Voices and Events. 
the living record of history this week. You'll hear President Truman, Senator Herbert Lehman, and Mayor O'Dwyer, Vito Marcantonio and Alvin Barkley, and a special report on John L. Lewis. On election night, New York City Mayor William O'Dwyer, who'd succeeded Fiorello LaGuardia, won re-election. your editor for Voices and Events, James Fleming. Election night, 1949. The results greeted by Democrats with cheers. And perhaps for the first time in history, we heard a president of the United States reading the returns. Some late returns. In Boston, Mayor Curley has 15,427 votes and Hines has 14,948. In New York, Mayor O'Dwyer has 406,000 votes and Newbold Morris 291,000. The latest returns on uh, the Lehman Dulles uh, fiasco is. <laughs> It will be that when Lehman gets through with this, fellow. In uh, New York, Lehman took the lead over Dulles in 1,452 precincts. He's 393,092 to 317,307. If you come in, we'll try to give them to you. President Truman was speaking off the cuff to the National Women's Democratic Club. The results were all but final, and Mr. Truman acknowledged the ladies' role in what was happening in New York State. I'm very certain that every woman in the great state of New York has been doing her duty today as a result of those returns. That means she's had the old man go to the polls and she's gone herself and voted. <laughs> say there are about 2% more women voted than the men. O'Dwyer was soon confronted with a political corruption scandal uncovered by King County D.A. Miles McDonald. O'Dwyer would resign from office on August 31, 1950. President Truman appointed him U.S. Ambassador to Mexico. O'Dwyer would return to New York in 1951 to answer questions about his association with organized crime. He resigned as ambassador in 1952. Yes, it was all over two hours after the polls closed here in New York. Mercy on us all. On the frigid, blustery night of December 16, 1835, the worst fire in New York City history sweeps through Manhattan. Everything south of Maiden Lane and east of Broad Street 
at that time the city's chief merchant district, and the one with the highest property value, turns to rubble. The fire causes the modern equivalent of a half billion dollars in damages, and the official investigation finds an exploded gas pipe near a lit coal stove in the offices of Comstock and Andrews to be the culprit. No public blame is ever assigned. But what if New York's greatest accidental fire was no accident? Coming to your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new audio drama about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed or go to burninggotham.com. December, Jack Benny's rating was up to 25.4, tops on radio. In many cases, a, a show would get well underway before he would even make an appearance. That's on it. true, yeah. 
That's very true. And then he had a, a great facility of mentioning something. I wonder where I put that book or something mm -hmm. like that or where Dennis would be or whatever's going to happen. And all of a sudden, when we're practically to the end of the show, that would come in in another roundabout way <laughs> that made a hilarious ending to the whole thing. He had that great facility. So he was really, in the early days when I was with Jack, he used to work with the writers on all the mm -hmm. ideas and the dialogue and everything else. And then when we'd come in to read, usually on a Wednesday or Thursday, we'd have our first reading. And after the reading was over, we'd leave and go home. And then they would edit it and tighten it up. And my gosh, every time, that would be 200% better once they worked it mm -hmm. over. And Jack would work. He says, I don't like this. I don't like this. We've got to replace this. Or bring in, you know, new dialogue or let's keep this. But he was a great editor of scripts. This is one of the great sense of comedy that the mm -hmm. man had. Not only was uh, an editor, but what a timer, a master timer. He knew how long to milk a laugh and when to stop when it, he had enough or the public had enough, the audience. On December 11, 1949, Jack attempted to make arrangements for his Texas benefit appearance. Starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jack is leaving tonight for Houston, Texas, where he's going to be the master of ceremonies at the big charity football game there next Saturday. As we look in at the Benny house, Rochester is finishing Jack's pack. Let's see, I've got all his clothes packed. His shaving cream, razor, toothbrush, and toothpaste. Hmm, I better check and see if I packed all his pills. I can't understand why Mr. Benny carries all these medicines. He's ne he never takes any, but he always wants them with him. I guess it's like his money. He never spends any, but it gives him comfort to know it's there. <laughs> I wonder where the... Rochester, have you finished my packing? Uh, just about, boss. Do uh, you want me to... You want to look in the suitcase before I close it? Yeah, let's see. Suit, shirts, underwear. Roger, why'd you pack all these thick woolen socks? It doesn't get that cold in Texas. I know, but in case you step into any oil, you'll want to sop up as much as you can. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Say, boss, isn't Phil Harris going down with you? Yes, Rochester, and Dinah Shore, too. We're going to have quite a show. No, it's for the Damon Runyon Fund, the National Kids Foundation, and Holly Hall of Houston. It's going to be one of the biggest... I'll get it, Rochester. You finish packing. Hello? Hiya, Jackson. Well, if it isn't Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer. <laughs> what do you want, Phil? Well, I want to tell you I might be a little late getting down to that railroad station. Well, Phil, you better not miss the train. It's important. You know. It's important that I have my hair done, too. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake, Phil You have it done every two days Why are you so proud of your hair? Look, Jackson, it's the only nice thing I've got That Alice didn't give me <laughs> oh. Say, Phil, when we get down to Houston What kind of a routine are you going to do on the show? Oh, the usual thing Stand up there, let them look at me 
Then I'll tell a few jokes and then I'll sing 28 choruses and that's what I like about the South. 28 choruses? Well, it ain't no use in giving them the whole thing, Jackson. Let them tease them a little. Let's tease them a little. Well, anyway, Phil, you couldn't possibly sing the whole song. We're only gonna be there five days, you know. Now look, Phil, here's something very important I want to tell you before we leave. Yeah, what is it? Well, first, I want you to... Phil. 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 Oh, darn it, we were cut off. Well, he knows it's important. He'll probably call me right back. Now, Rochester. Oh. Hello, Phil. I'm glad you called back because... Jack, this is Mary. Oh, hello, Mary. I was expecting Phil. Well, Jack, I'm calling from a bookstore, and I thought I'd get you something to read on the train. Oh, good, Mary. That's sweet. What are you getting me? A book of epigrams and witty sayings. Epigrams and witty sayings? What do I need with that? Well, you may get into a conversation with someone. You know how lost you are without your writers. <laughs> well, you needn't worry about that, Mary. I'm taking one of my writers with me. Oh, good. You'll be the life of the club car. Uh, which writer are you taking? John Tackerberry. Tackerberry? Yes, you see, he came from Houston 10 years ago, and I thought it'd be nice if I took him home so he could change his clothes. <laughs> Now, look, Barry, I'm expecting Phil to call me right back, so I better hang up. Goodbye. Goodbye, Jack. I wish Phil would hurry up and call back. It's important. Maybe I better call him. Boss, I've got everything packed. Good. And I've taken care of everything I had to do, too. Gee, I'm glad I went to the dentist this morning and had my teeth fixed. <laughs> You're going to strike oil even if you have to bite your way down. <laughs> Never mind. I'm going to call... That's probably Phil. Phil? Oh, hello, Jack. This is Don. Oh, hello, Don. I was expecting a call from Phil. Where are you? Well, I'm rehearsing the Sportsman Quartet for their opening at the Coconut Grove Tuesday night. Oh, yes, and they got the job at the Ambassador. Yes, yes. Gee, I wish I could be there, but I have to leave town. Oh, don't worry, Jack. They'll mail you the commission. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, anyway, Don, uh, give them my best wishes for their opening. I will, Jack. Goodbye. So long. If I can keep that quartet working, I can relax a little. Oh, Rochester, I must be sure to take my... Hello? Jack, I forgot to ask you. Would you like me to pick you up and drive you down to the station? Oh, fine, Mary. That's swell. And, gee, I wish you could go to Texas with me. Well, you know, I'd love to, Jack, but my family's coming here for a visit from Plainfield. Oh, yes, you mentioned that yesterday. When are you expecting them? Well, that's hard to say. You see, my sister babe is flying, and Mom is coming by train, and... Papa's coming by bus. Gee, that's peculiar. Why do they travel separately? <laughs> that way they don't have to explain each other to strangers. <laughs> oh, oh, well, that's logical. <laughs> uh, yeah. I hope the vacation out here does Babe some good. She's still heartbroken. I know. She was awfully upset about Gargantua. <laughs> What? They hardly knew each other. <laughs> oh. Now, Jack, when I take you to the station, I won't be able to stay too long. I gotta be back for Benita and Ronnie's party. Oh, the Coleman's are throwing a party, eh? Now, isn't that my luck? The night I go away, they have a party. What's the occasion? You just said it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Goodbye. Bye. Well, I can't wait any longer. I gotta call Phil. Let's see, his number is... Oh, well, that must be him. Hello? Now look, Charlie, I haven't got much time, so listen to me. I'm phoning you to warn you that my husband's wise to us and he's on his way over to your house with a gun. 
So get out of town, Charlie. Get out quick. <laughs> Gee, uh, Gee, I'm... Yeah, I'm certainly my gl glad I'm, my name isn't... Oh. Elliot's a good writer, a good producer, and you know Leonard did all right. He later went with Lucy or somebody, he did very Dane well. Thomas, he did a lot of stuff with. That's uh, right. Sheldon That's right. Leonard, yeah. Well, those guys all came up through mm -hmm. the ranks, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Because when you're around Benny, you were around a guy that he and Fred Allen and guys like that, they're timing, you know. They're um, like Benny used to have office hours in Beverly Hills. Those writers had to be there. Didn't they? they were there at a certain time. He sat at the table. Nobody took bits home like they do now. You do this and you two writers do. No way. You sat right at the table and started this thing. And I've been in there sometime. Jack and I, we really got along. And I've been in there sometime when they had a line for me to break the building down. Mm -hmm. And Benny would say, no does not fit his character. I've been too long building it up. In other words, he protected, protected. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot of other shows, they had a guy in the air one time, they had him doing this, doing that. First thing you know, they burn him out. When he came to me one time, he said, there's no way to kill you. I found you four stories down in the basement. I brought you out, I had you married, I had you drinking, I had two kids, I had you back on the booze again. He said, there's no way to kill you. <laughs> Hello? Hey, Jackson, I've been trying to get you back. Now, what was the important thing you wanted to talk to me about? It's not important now. Phil, tell me something and tell me the truth. Is Phil your right first name? <laughs> sure, Jackson, sure. Are you... you positive? Certainly I'm positive. Well, Phil, did you ever tell anybody your name was Charlie? Huh? No. Good. Then you can take your time getting to the train. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'll explain it later. It's a juicy tidbit. <laughs> now, Phil, are you all packed and ready to go? Yep, everything's all corked up. Good. <laughs> well, good. I'll see you later then. Boss, you want me to drive you to the station? No, Rochester. Miss Livingston is going to pick me up. So close my bags and I'll answer the door, Rochester. Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny. I heard you were going away, so I came to say goodbye. Well, that's nice, kid. Goodbye. <laughs> well, he came to say goodbye, and he said it. <laughs> now, Rochester. Hmm. What is it now? You didn't tell me where you're going. Well, if you're interested, Dennis, I'm going to Houston, Texas. What for? For a benefit. If you had two shows, you wouldn't need to go. <laughs> Look, Dennis. Goodbye. Now, there's the silliest kid I... Oh, no! Oh, no! You answer the door this time, Rochester. Yes, Yes? Is Mr. Benny in? <laughs> of course I'm in. Now, come on in here, Dennis. Yes, sir. Now, look, kid. Yes, sir? Why can't you act like a normal, sensible human... Now, who can that be? 
He locked me out. <laughs> oh, this is like a Marx brother picture here. <laughs> Dennis, what did you come over here for anyway? Well, I made an RCA Victor recording of Dear Hearts and Gentle People, and I thought you might like to hear it, and I brought the record with me. All right, Dennis, I've got a few minutes. Put on the record, let me hear it. But if Mary comes by to pick me up, I'll have to leave. Okay. Okay. I remember one script where I went over to Jack Benny's house and I sang the song, which I usually had to do every week, sing the song I was going to sing on the following Sunday's program. And I went over there and I sang the song, and after I had sung it, Jack says, Dennis, that'll be fine. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Benny, and i got to go now. And he showed me to the door, and as I was about to leave, I turned and I said, goodbye, Mr. Benny, and have a nice trip. I left, of course. He went upstairs, and he was halfway through packing before he realized he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, these are the silly type of things. There was another one I remember where, in the body of the show, I had done something very frightening to Jack because he had another singer on the program, and I was very jealous, and I was mad. So what I was doing, I was hiding in the bushes in his home, at Beverly Hills, and I was throwing rocks with notes attached through the window. And he would read them, you know, and I'd say, you are next, and this type of thing. You think you can get away with it, but you can't. And all of this, well, sure enough, I was caught by the police in Beverly Hills. At the end of the show, in the tag, he calls everybody out, and he called me out for a bow, and he said to me, Dennis, what you did to me in the show tonight, frightening me the way you did, gave me an eerie feeling. And when I heard that, I said, what did you say, Mr. Benny? He says, what you did to me gave me an eerie feeling. And I said, gee, Mr. Benny, that's where I was born. He said, oh, Erie, Pennsylvania? I said, no. Feeling West Virginia. <laughs> now, that's a lousy joke, but I could get away with it. That's not really a bad character joke. character that I play. It's not that bad a joke, actually. Yeah. Gee, Mary, it was awfully nice of you to drive me down to the station. Oh, that's all right, Jack. I wanted to see you off. Yeah, well, let's go in. Train leaving on track five for Anaheim, Azusa, and Cucamonga. You know, Jack, there's something fascinating about a railroad station. So many people going so many places. Yeah. 
poor Charlie didn't quite make it. I more or less kept the comedy for Jack in the program. See, I did his trained caller, his violin teacher, his Maxwell, his, the man who was uh, always the salesman in the, at Christmas time in the department store, and several other voices for Jack. What was that famous voice then at the railroad station? I think that seems to be one of the most. Oh popular. yeah, that was the train caller. Says train ending on track five for Anaheim, Azusa, and Cucamonga. You know, a lot of people thought those were phony towns, but those are real towns around Los Angeles. Yeah, I found out after like, <laughs> I made a few wrong turns since I've been out here. <laughs> One sound I might tell you, Jack Benny was supposed to be visiting Epsom Downs in England, the horse races. And uh, the scriptwriters always tried to throw me with something. They tried to put something in that I couldn't do. And this time they put in Mel Blank does an English horse whinny. Now, how can you tell the nationality of a horse, you know? So I didn't say anything, and I waited till it came to that spot, and I did an English horse whinny that sounded like this. Well, I guess the Benny was, uh, that was probably your most exposure in all of radio, wasn't it? Uh, uh, yes, it was, uh, yes. Well, the beauty of radio was the fact that you could do more than one voice on television where they see you, you have to more or less do just one character. Okay. Attention, please, attention. To facilitate the holiday rush, all passengers going to Cucamonga may have their choice of trains, local, express, or mule. <laughs> have your feed bags validated. Well, I've still got time to get my magazine. He hasn't announced my train yet. Attention, please, attention. Train leaving on track one for Baltimore and Washington. It's leaving now, so you better run. <laughs> Let's see. I think the newsstand is over by the... Hello, Mr. Benny. Well, Mr. Kitson. What are you doing by the railroad station? Well, I'm going to Houston, Texas. Well, put on there, partner. That's where I'm heading. <laughs> what? Give me land, lots of land, neat the sun is skies above. Don't smog me. <laughs> well, Mr. Kitzel, I'll probably see you down there. I'll be at the Shamrock Hotel. Shamrock? My, that's a wonderful name for a hotel. It brings a lump in my throat. It does? Yes, I haven't seen a shamrock since I left the old country. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure you'll have a lot of fun in Texas. You're certainly dressed for it, too. Cowboy boots, spurs, and a gun. Tell me, Mr. Kitzel, are you handy with a gun? <laughs> you are? I can throw a biscuit up in the air and with one shot make a bagel out of it. <laughs> Oh, then you are pretty good. Well, so long, Mr. Kitzel. See you in Texas. Well, I better go over and get that magazine before the train leaves. Attention, please, attention. Train leaving on track three, all the way to Schenectady. Just one stop at Kansas City. <laughs> 
got to get a newspaper, too. I want to see if they have anything in it about... Uh, Jack, what time does your train leave? I don't know. It's not on the hit parade yet. (laughs) What? Nothing, nothing. Attention, please, attention. Train leaving on track two for Asheville, Nashville, Kalamazoo takes on water at Waterloo. (laughs) Mary, I'm going to stop at the magazine... Sam. <laughs> Mind my suitcase, Mary. I'll be right back. Now, let's see. There's so many magazines here. I don't know which one to get. Oh, mister. Mister. Why do I always have to run into him? Now, look, mister, all I want to do is buy a magazine. Okay. Do you want to read it or tear it in half to show me how strong you are? (laughs) I want to read it, and I'll take this one here. Well, house and garden, aren't you lucky? What? Today only, with every copy, we give away a pocket full of fertilizer. Now, look, mister, I came here to catch a train. I'm not going to put up oh, with any... pardon me for interrupting, but may I have a package of Lucky Strikes, please? Uh, yes, sir. Here you are. Mm. Uh, here's your chain. Thank you. May I have a light, please? Uh, yes, sir. Here, I'll light it for you. Oh, I don't know which magazine. Ah, my favorite cigarette. Uh, mine, too. They're so round, so firm, so fully packed. And so free and easy on the draw. You keep out of this! <laughs> But look, I know all about... You know, clerk, I've been listening to the radio a lot, and I'd like to ask you something. Is it true that there isn't a rough puff in a Lucky because it's made of that fine, that light, that naturally mild tobacco? Uh-huh. And uh, is it true that veteran tobacco men choose Lucky Strikes for their own personal enjoyment? Uh-huh. And is it true that Luckies pay millions of dollars more than official parity prices? Ooh, do they? <laughs> Now, look, clerk, I can't stand here all day. I'll take this magazine here, this copy of the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, Yes, sir, that'll be 15 cents. Here you are. You want it gift-wrapped, I suppose. (laughs) Oh, quiet. You burn me up, you stupid jerk. When you come round, I go berserk. Train now leaving for Albuquerque. (laughs) Now cut that out! Jack always referred to him as his nemesis. Yeah, he's, well, the nemesis character, because, yeah, I played a variety of things, but they were all uh-huh. the same fellow. And he never had a name, like Mr. Kitzel, you know, uh-huh. had a name uh-huh. and so on. But if he ever referred to him by name, he just called me my name, Mr. Nelson. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. So many people, uh-huh. I meet people on the street, you know, they say, hey, you're, you're that fellow on the Jack Benny show. I say, yeah, what's your name? Because they, they really didn't know <laughs> yeah. you. Me now board train on track nine for Phoenix, El Paso, and Houston. Train will depart in 15 minutes. Gee, 15 minutes. Jack, Jack, they just called your train. I know, Mary. Well, why don't you get on now? It'll give you time to relax. Yeah, I think I will. Well, goodbye, Mary. Bye, Jack. Well, have a good time. I will. So long. See you in a few days. Gosh, this is what I hate about seeing someone off. You always have to go home alone. I think I'll go out the side exit. It's closer to the... Oops! Oh, I... I beg your pardon. 
That's quite all right, miss. I was trying to cut across to gate nine. Uh, wait a minute. Aren't you Frank Leahy, the football coach at Notre Dame? Uh, yes, I am. I'm awfully sorry I bumped you so hard. Oh, it was all my fault. I saw you coming, but I didn't realize a girl could throw that kind of a block. <laughs> well, I, I should have looked where I was going. Uh, may I... Uh, uh... No, no, thank you. I can get up by myself. <laughs> Gosh, Mr. Lay, wait till I tell my friends that I ran into the coach at Notre Dame. A team that has played 38 games without one defeat. Well, the credit really should go to the players and the assistant coaches. As head coach, my job is merely to help develop them. Uh, uh, Mr. Lay, what have you got in that suitcase? A quarterback, I like to get them young. <laughs> Oh, I'm just kidding, of course. That's a mama doll. I'm taking it home to Sue and Flossie, our two daughters. Attention, please. Train leaving for Yuma, Phoenix, El Paso, and Houston. All aboard. That's my train. I'd better run along. Goodbye, Mr. Leahy. Goodbye. It was nice talking to you. All aboard. All aboard. Oh, Porter. Porter. Yes, sir. Uh, which way to the lounge? Uh, the next car back, sir. Thank you. It's a beautiful lounge car. Uh, pardon me, sir. Is this seat next to you taken? Uh, no, no. You may have it. Thank you. Nice day for traveling, isn't it? Yes, yeah, certainly is. Yep. Comfortable seats. By the way, you're Jack Benny, aren't you? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. I'm on my way to Texas. I'm putting on a show at that big charity football game in Houston. Well, that's very nice. Of course, I'm rather flattered they asked me to come down. But then, of course, at one time, I was quite a football player myself, you see? You know, I used to play with the Waukegan Terrors. Uh, Waukegan Terrors? <laughs> Sounds frightening, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I was famous for one particular play. It was a very tricky thing where I used to send the end out wide and... Oh, pardon me. Are you familiar with football? I mean, do you know, do you know the game at all? By that, I mean, uh, do you... Yes, as a matter of well, fact, Well, get this I... play. The ends went out wide. I sent both my halfbacks to the left and my four quarterbacks to the right. Four quarterbacks? Yes. Am I getting too technical? Well, not yet. <laughs> anyway, to make a long story short, we'd pull the opposing halfbacks out of position, and I'd send my fullback into the open and throw a long pass to him. Why didn't you send a quarterback? You had plenty of them. Well, we were having so much luck this way, I didn't want to change, you see. Do you see many football games during the season, Mr... Mr... Uh, Leahy, Frank Leahy. Oh, oh, pleased to meet you, Mr. Leahy. Uh, where are you from? I mean, um, where's your place of business? South Bend, Indiana. Oh, nice town, nice town. You know, I used to play it in vaudeville. 
Uh, what do you do there, Mr. Lee? Are you a salesman or in the insurance business? Uh, well, uh... Oh, I'm sorry for being so nosy. Maybe you don't want to talk about it. Well, I think I'll go back to my compartment and read a while. Oh, darn it, I bought a magazine and left it in the station. Well, if you feel like reading, Mr. Benny, I have a book here that might interest you. Oh, well, thank you. Are you through with it? Uh, surely, take it along. Well, that's awfully nice of you. Thanks very much. See you later, Mr. Leahy. Funny he was so reticent about telling me what business he was in. Well, I think I'll just stretch out here on the seat and read the book he gave me. Well, this is a, this is a coincidence. This book is about football. Notre Dame football, the T formation, by Coach Frank Leahy. Chapter. Yikes! <laughs> oh my goodness. That's who I was talking to. Frank Leahy, the coach of Notre Dame. And I'm stuck on the train with him for two days. <laughs> I'll never be able to face him. I know what I'll do. <clears throat> Darn these windows, you can never open them. <laughs> well, I'll just have to stay in my compartment for the entire trip. I can't bear to... Come in. Oh, Mr. Leahy. Mr. Leahy, it's you. Uh, yes, Jack. I thought you might like to have dinner with me this evening. Well, that's very nice of you, Mr. Lee, but first I must apologize for making such a fool of myself. Imagine me not knowing what business you were in. Well, Jack, don't let it worry you. When we played SMU last week, up to the last quarter, I didn't know what business I was in either. <laughs> no! Well, come on, Frank, we'll go to dinner. And it's my treat. <laughs> Jack Benny's show was really quite easy to do. I'm talking now from the actor's standpoint. Obviously, the writing was meticulous. Jack honed a lot of that writing. He sat with the writers a great deal. He, uh, if it came down to a rock-bottom decision as to a joke in or out, it would be very often Jack's decision that made that happen. But for an actor, it was a very simple show to do. You'd go in, we'll say on Saturday, You'd read through once. Just sit down, read the script straight through, get up and leave. And you'd come back in on Sunday. You'd read once around the table, go and read it once on the mic, and that's all until showtime. Just that easy to do. So the whole uh, thing was really right in there with the writing. It well, was it was that, that and also <laughs> that Jack knew his people, and they wrote for those people. Jack had a great thing that I don't think any other comic in the business had. If you were to pick up a Jack Benny script and read it, You'd say, well, wait a minute, where, where are Mr. Benny's jokes? Because Jack didn't do jokes. He did looks, he did takes, he fed, really, you, the actor around him. That's the way he conducted his show. The big jokes were in the hands of the people who surrounded him, which was most unusual. And it showed that he had tremendous confidence in himself. He surrounded himself with characters that people expected to hear also. When, yeah. as soon as he said, oh, mister, People said, oh boy, here it comes. He's going to get it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if he said, excuse me, and the fellow said, see? He said, oh boy, here it yeah. comes. Now they're yeah. going to do that routine. The people were in on it, and I think they enjoyed being in on it. I guess the fact that the show stayed on top all the years that it did proved that. 
you, Mr. Leahy. This was a wonderful dinner, wasn't it? It certainly was, Jack. Oh, waiter, waiter, the check? No, 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 Mr. Leahy, this is on me. A waiter, I'll take the check. Here you are, Mr. Benny. Thank you. Now, just a second while I... Hmm. Uh, what's the matter, Jack? Something wrong with the check? No, no, but... <laughs> Mr. Leahy, this will kill you. <laughs> Remember when I told you I forgot my magazine? Yes. <laughs> well, I forgot my wallet, too. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Uh, you know, Mr. Benny, uh... What? I'd like to have just one halfback that's as slippery as you are. <laughs> well, thank you. Good night. Be sure to hear Dennis Day in a day in the life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned to the Amos Mandy Show, which follows immediately. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. What about 1950? What are the prospects for business and labor and farmers and consumers? How does it look for 50? That is the question. This is America United, the informal roundtable program heard on the NBC network each week at this time. The transcribed program where business, labor, and agriculture openly discuss their differences, united in the belief they should be openly discussed. Host today is the National Grange, represented here by J.T. Sanders. Our other guests, O.V. Wells of the Department of Agriculture, Emerson P. Schmidt of the Chamber of Commerce of the United States, and Everett Casselow of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Our moderator is David Brinkley, NBC Washington commentator. Mr. Brinkley. On this, the last broadcast of America United in 1949, we're going to take a look ahead at 1950 and at what it offers what it promises, threatens, and how it looks. The U.S. spent the first 10 months of 1949 in a recession. Competition for the advertising dollar was stiffer. There were now over 2,600 AM and FM radio stations in the country, and TV was becoming a serious threat. Over 100 TV stations were on the air. Only two network radio shows had ratings higher than a 20. Just two years earlier, they were a 15. Radio's average top 50 ratings were their lowest since 1937, and network radio revenue dropped for the first time since 1933. In one word, I would say I expect next year to be about normal. That means we don't think it's either going to be too good or too bad. Meanwhile, NBC, ABC, CBS, and the Dumont Network reported a combined TV income of $29.4 million. But advertisers were learning that TV production costs were much greater than radios. The extra money had to come from somewhere. Radio budgets were the likely source. But it'll still be a pretty good year for workers, for the consumer, and for business. On December 18, 1949, NBC broadcast an episode of America United with a panel discussion on estimates and predictions concerning 1950. It was moderated by David Brinkley, at the time NBC's Washington commentator. If one could say 1949 was a good year. Uh, I would add that uh, I think you've got to try to judge this thing on, on sort of a sweep basis. We began to get unemployment problems in this year, and we have the uh, feeling that they'll be somewhat more acute in 1950. Uh, that does not mean uh, one, can, one should look or expect a major depression or economic collapse. But uh, the outlook is for levels somewhat down from 1949. 
Thank you. Now, Mr. Sanders of the National Grange. Well, uh, Mr. Brinkley, I would agree with uh, Mr. Wells over here pretty well. Uh, so far as business, so far as um, wage income is concerned, and so far as industrial income and production is concerned. The post-World War II world had been chaotic. Europe was rebuilding slowly as the U.S. and Russia became the two superpowers. That same day, as the Philadelphia Eagles were beating the Los Angeles Rams in the 1949 NFL championship game, Nikita Khrushchev was made the Soviet Communist Party's secretary of the Central Committee, and single-party communist elections were held in Bulgaria. Two days later, Joseph Stalin was awarded the Order of Lenin as part of celebrations for his 70th birthday. This trend uh, uh, can do very serious damage because it doesn't take very much of the uh, in, uh, for income of agriculture to drop if costs remain high to seriously affect the net income of I don't know if you realize this or not, but everybody that worked for Jack Benny when I did was exclusive. They couldn't work for anybody else. Don Wilson could never go on another show unless he got permission from Jack. Mary Livingston, his wife, couldn't. I couldn't. Rochester couldn't. Jack Benny was anything from what he portrayed. He was anything but a screw. We were making so much money that we didn't know what to do with it enough that we didn't have to work with anybody else. And then Jack used to come to you about every six months and say, uh, go to a guy by the name of Blum, at that time was his manager, and say, tell him to give you some more money. I said, Jack, I don't need any more money. I said, you got me off of the road. This is the first time I ever had a house. And he says, I know, but tell him to give you. I said, what for? All I'm doing now is, hey, Jackson, hello, Mary, here comes Rochester. I had three lines. And he used to say, go get some more money. So I'd go and tell Blum, Blum to give me some more money. The next Sunday, I'd be sitting over in the restaurant on Vine Street, and Jack would say, hey, if you got a quarter, I want to get a couple of Robert Burns cigars. Two of Benny's longtime friends were his band leader, Phil Harris, and announcer, Don Wilson. Most people ask the question, was Jack Benny as funny off the air as on? Jack was not that kind of a comedian. Jack was a great listener an appreciator of other comedians when they were on. And he would always stay in the background. He would always laugh and get a lot of enjoyment out of another comic's work. And great applause from Benny. But if Benny was in a crowd of comedians, he was eventually on. He could top everybody. He was just not in real life. A one-liner stand-up comedian like a Burl or George Burns or somebody like that, you know. He was a real and thoroughbred professional from start to finish. He always demanded the very, very best that he could possibly get. And if there ever was to be an irreplaceable man, Jack Benny would unquestionably be that man. At 7 p.m. Eastern Time on December 18th, Jack Benny took to the air with what had become a programming staple his Christmas shopping episode.
Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, the Sportsman Quartet, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Gentlemen, let's go out to Beverly Hills. It's morning, and hundreds of people, brimming with the Christmas spirit, are waiting for the local department store to open its doors. Oh, Mary. Mary, where are you? Here I am, Jack, right behind you. Oh, yeah. Say, Mary, how'd you like the way I wiggled myself through this crowd, right up to the front of the line? Yeah. Those rumble lessons you took from Arthur Murray really helped. I'll say. When we started, we were way at the end, and now there's only one man ahead of me. Hello, Jack. Hello, Mr. Murray. <laughs> Oh, look, look, Mary, they're getting ready to open the store and let the crowd in. I can see the manager walking over to the floor walker. Jasper, what is it, Mr. Simpkins? It's almost time to open the store. Are all the clerks at their station? Yes, sir. Good. You will open the doors in ten seconds. Are you ready for final inspection? Yes, sir. Hair? Calm. Chin? Out. Jacket? Pressed. Carnation? Moist. Good. <laughs> it is now nine o'clock. You may open the doors and guide our customers into the store. Yes, sir. Mule train! Get out! Get out! Mule train! Get in there! 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 Mule train! Get out! Get How could you do a thing like that to our customers? When I saw those faces, I couldn't control myself. <laughs> Wait here, Mary. I'll be right back. Jack, don't get into it. Never mind. Say, mister, are you the manager? Uh, yes, I am. Well, as one of your steady customers, I resent being ushered into the store like a mule. I apologize, sir. I've never been I so... said, I apologize. Put your ears down. <laughs> Now, look, mister. Jack, I told you not to get into it. Come on. Oh, all right. Jack, I'd like to go to a store with you just once where you don't get into an argument with everybody. Look, Mary, I'll admit that sometimes it may be my fault, but not this time. Imagine driving customers into a store yelling mule train. Well, don't stand there complaining. Go have your coat fixed. My coat? His whip tore your sleeve off. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'll just pin it and then fix it when I get home. Come on. Mary, what do you think I ought to get for my sister Florence in Chicago? Oh, I don't know. It ought to be something nice. You know, Mary, I have no brothers and no other sister. Florence is my only close relative. I ought to get her something really nice. Uh, what'd you get her last year? A pencil sharpener. <laughs> oh, how sweet, Jack. But then she is your only sister. Yeah. After all, you know... Jack, let's go outside and come in the store again. Why? I want that guy with the whip to get another crack at you. <laughs> Nothing doing. He had his chance. Anyway, I can't understand a store like this bringing customers in just the way... Hey, they... pardon me, mister. Did you see my wife? Huh? Are you talking to me? Yeah. Did you see my wife? No, I haven't. As a matter of fact, I don't even know your wife. Then how do you know you didn't see her? <laughs> now, mister, how would I know... I can't stand here. Yeah, bring 
Now, come on, Mary. Let's go. Oh, Jack, look. There's Dennis. Where? Oh, yes. Hey, young man, what can I do for you? Gee, I don't know what to get for my mother. She goes horseback riding a lot. Maybe she'd like it if I buy something for the horse. Well, say, mister. Yes? How much is that horse collar? Horse collar? Yes, that white one hanging up there on the wall. Young man, this is a plumbing department. <laughs> What is it you're looking for? Oh, I don't know, but I'd like to get something for my mother. Well, I can call the ladies' department and save you some time. Did you have anything in mind? Oh, yes, sir. I think a dress would be nice. Oh, that's an excellent idea. What size dress does your mother wear? 36. 36? Uh-huh. I think I ought to get her a nightgown, too. Size 58. <laughs> now, wait a minute, son. If your mother wears a 36 dress, why would she wear a 58 nightgown? She doesn't sleep in her girdle. <laughs> Young man, young man, I think you're a little confused. However, I will admit there is a little variation in size, but very slight. Gee, I hope that movie company doesn't find out. Movie company? Yeah, they want my mother to take off her girdle to advertise their new picture. What picture? Lost Boundaries. <laughs> young man, would you do me a favor and shoplift something so I can have you arrested? What? Hey, let it go. Is there anything else I can do for you? Uh-huh. Those men's shirts in that case across the aisle, are they real silk? Oh, yes, they are. They'd make a wonderful gift for your father. Oh, they're not for my father. I'd like to buy them for Jack Benny. Jack Benny? Do you know him? Oh, sure. He's on one of my shows. <laughs> Dennis! Dennis! Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Hello, Mary. Hello, Dennis. Doing your Christmas shopping? Yes. I was just going to decide on Mr. Benny's gift, and he had to walk up and spoil the whole thing. Oh, I'm sorry, kid. I, I didn't know you wanted it to be a secret. Yeah. Now you'll have to close your eyes. Okay. Got him closed? Uh-huh. Okay, mister, you can wrap it up now and put it in a shoebox so he won't know it's a shirt. <laughs> can I open my eyes now? Yeah. Gee, that was a close one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, say, Mr. Benny, while my packages are being gift-wrapped, would you like to step over to the music counter and hear a record I just made? Oh, sure, kid. Come on. Oh, miss? Yes? Do you have the latest record made by Dennis Day? You mean I must have done something wonderful? Yeah, that's the one. Uh, would you play it, miss? I'm sorry, but our record player is broken. Broken? Yeah, all day yesterday, every five minutes, some curly-headed jerk kept requesting, that's what I like about the South. <laughs> I think I know who you mean. Uh, why didn't you tell him that you refused to play it? And get hit with a ham hock? <laughs> oh, yes, he's never without one. Gee, and I wanted you to hear my record. Well, if it'll make you feel better, Dennis, you sing and I'll spin you around. Eh? Okay. Okay, come on. get those commercials in. That was the important yeah. thing. And of course, Jack was the first one to do the integrated commercials way back in the 30s by uh, 
Jello again, mm. and, uh, and then we went from there to Grape Nuts, and then we went into uh, uh, LSMFT, Lucky Strike, Green has gone to war, yeah. and all of that. <laughs> but he always integrated the commercials as part of the program. All of us, like Rochester, Phil Harris, Don Wilson, we only had about a page and a half of dialogue on the show. But you better believe that it was the best dialogue mm. that possibly could be written. Because Jack knew it was good for himself and for all of the characters on the show. No matter how many laughs, he was very happy with all the laughs you might get. And uh, at, when the show was over, many people would say, Hey, did you hear Dennis or did you hear Phil Harris on the Jack Benny show last mm. night? It was still the Jack Benny show because he was the catalyst who manipulated mm -hmm. the whole thing. The jokes bounced off of him. He was the butt of most of the jokes. And we got the laughs, but it's still, he uh, was a genius in that sense. Everything was gone over the airwaves, you know, it was sound, and everyone could imagine what a person looked like, mm -hmm. what a situation looked like, in their own minds, by sound effects and by the person's voice. After the w World War II, I went back to New York with the Benny Show and also uh, to do my own show. And I did a TV show in New York. And that was in a, a little studio, no bigger than maybe about an 8 by 8 And I lip-synced back to one of my old recordings. Now, that's how primitive it was. Hmm. And then all they were doing was just trying out, you know, for color of people and how they looked and uh, camera techniques and all of that. So, th of course, we didn't have color then either. It was only black and white. But it shows how primitive it was. Here I was lip-singing. There was nothing live. So this was back in 1946, early 47. Mm -hmm. And then I think it started really to catch on at about 1949. Benny did his first in 1950. So he'd do maybe once a month. And even when Jack went into television, he wasn't sure of what he was going to do in television. The first couple of shows, he was floundering, really, not sure of what direction he was going to take. And then he went back to the old, really, what he did in vaudeville, doing a monologue in the beginning and then bringing in uh, the other characters and everything else and doing sketches, more or less. Say, Mary, don't you think that song will be... Mary... Now, where did Mary go? Well, she's way over there at the end of the counter. Oh, yeah. May I uh, wait on you, miss? Yes, uh, I'd like to get something for a gentleman. A gentleman? Your uh, husband? Uh, no, my boss. He's been nice to me, and I'd like to show my appreciation. Oh, here's something nice. A gold tie clasp. A gold tie clasp? No. Well, how about a gold keychain? No. How about gold cufflinks? Look, mister, I don't want to get him anything. He can melt down. <laughs> Gee, I wish I could think of something. Well, miss, perhaps I could help you better if you told me how closely you two are associated. Are, uh, are you engaged? Uh, no, we're not. Is he your boyfriend? No, as a matter of fact, he treats me more like a sister. How about a pencil sharpener? <laughs> Yes, we ship one to Chicago every year. <laughs> it goes to a girl named Flossie. Uh, you mean Florence. Well, I feel like I know her. <laughs> hey, Mary. Mary, let's not keep losing each other. 
I spend more. Oh, than... hello, Mr. Benny. Oh, hello, hello. It's uh, on the way to Chicago. Uh, wait a minute. This year, I was going to get my sister something different. <laughs> Come on, Mary, let's go. You know, it's amazing how everybody knows I'm a comedian. Mary, I'm going to get something else for my sister. Now, is there anything else, sir? Well, I don't know, baby. Uh, let's see what I bought so far. Well, there's one black negligee. Yeah. <laughs> That's for my ever-loving wife. Oh, you... You're married? Am I married? Why, I'm married to Alice Faye, the sweetest <laughs> little gal who ever... Oh, come on now, baby. Stop crying. There ain't enough of me for everybody. <laughs> Happens every time. Now, <laughs> uh, let's see, honey. I've got everybody's present except one for Jackson. Oh, I know. I'll, I'll get him a pair of socks. What size? Uh, Eleven and a half. These? Yeah. Now, I'll just take off my shoes, put the new ones on, and then I'll be Mr. all... Mr. Right. Harris, I thought you were going to give socks to Mr. Benny. I am. Here are my old ones. Gift wrap them. <laughs> me to sew up the holes first? No, no, no. Just throw in a needle and thread and give the old man something to do when he gets home from his rumble lesson. <laughs> yeah, put plenty of ribbon on the box so the kids can oh, play Phil. around. Oh, Hey, Phil. Well, dear hearts and gentle people. <laughs> Funny running into you, Phil. Yeah, how's Alice? <laughs> now, stop it. Well, what's the matter with her? Usual thing. She's upset because she found out I'm married. Oh, now, that's ridiculous. You cried a little too, Dad. <laughs> all right, all right. But that was during the ceremony. It had nothing to do with you. Well, then why'd you cry? Because you wouldn't let him go on the honeymoon. Sorry, <laughs> stop. I've seen that. Oh, Jackson, I've got to finish my shopping, kids. Look, I've got to get some uh, California pennants. California pennants? Yeah, you see, I'm going to the Rose Bowl game, and I want to cheer for California, but all they got in this store are pennants from Syracuse. Pennants from Syracuse? Sure, there's a big box of them right up there on the counter. See what it says? Syracuse pennants. That circus peanut. <laughs> You be... He disappeared in the crowd. Good, good. Now, Mary, I wish you'd help me decide on something for my sister, Flora. Well, Jack, I've been trying to think. Gosh, I don't know. Hey, mister, are you sure you didn't see my wife? Uh, look, buddy, I'd like to help you, but I don't know what your wife looks like. Has she got any identifying marks? Well, she's got a birthmark on... Never mind, I'll look for her myself. <laughs> yes, yes, you better. Chloe! Come on, Mary. Why does everybody have to pick on me? Well, have you made up your mind, sir? Huh? Oh! Oh, I was just looking around. I sure would like to give my girl a ring like that. Well, I don't blame you. That's a beautiful diamond ring. Uh, how much is it? $4,000. That doesn't sound so bad. Uh, wait till I look at my bank book. Well? Uh, wait till I turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well? Uh, well, I turn another page. Hmm. Well? Uh, just a minute, I'm on the last page. Well, what's on the last page? Put something in the pot, boy. <laughs> well, look, mister, if you want to buy this ring, you don't have to pay the $4,000 cash. You can pay for it on easy terms. All you have to do is establish credit rating. Uh, credit rating? Yes, I have the forms right here. Your name? Rochester Van Jones. Are you employed? Yes, sir. Who do you work for? Jack Benny. Oh, what are your duties? You mean you want to go on? <laughs> Why, yes. What are your duties with Mr. Benny? Well, besides being his rumba partner, I'm his personal secretary, legal advisor, attorney at law, and I also select the scripts for the movies he makes. You pick his movies. He has to blame somebody. <laughs> well, I don't agree with you. I think that Mr. Benny is a great entertainer, whether it's stage, screen, or radio. And as far as I'm concerned, his last picture was one of the funniest I've ever seen. You keep talking like that, and you'll be in line for a pencil sharpener. <laughs> Jack Benny at the soap consisted of the following. We, we had KCMJ and Palm Springs, a 250-watt station, the only one in the desert at the time. And in the summer, Palm Springs virtually closed. There'd be one drugstore, a couple of restaurants, a hardware store, and a few construction workers and radio station and some hardy desert rats. And our audience went from thousands and thousands down to probably a few hundred. But we had to keep operating. And I was sitting in my non-resplendent office one day, and I saw this big Cadillac pull up in the driveway, and four people got out, including Jack. And I had met him in town, worked a couple of small things with him, and uh, I wouldn't expect him to remember me, but at least I went out and greeted him. He said, we have a favor to ask of you. These are my writers. He introduced uh, several of his writers, and they had transcriptions under their arms, the 16-inch platters. And he said, you're, you're the only people in town with a turntable to play these things, and they want me to hear this right now, can we do it? And I said, sure. We only have two turntables, and they won't be in use for an hour or so, so let's go in the control room. And I said, with the exception of the young man sitting here who had to do station breaks every half hour, who are on the network, uh, uh, you can have all the listening you can stand. So they took about two hours, and uh, they came out wrapped in thought, and uh, he parted the premises, and the car started up, and all of a sudden it stopped, and Benny got out, and he came back, and I, again, I went out to the door. Two young ladies in the office were enthralled, and the announcer who had uh, played the transcriptions for him, the announcer engineer, was out of his gourd with the whole thing. So uh, Jack walked up to me, and he said, I don't know what's the matter with my manners. He said, you've been so good to us, giving us this time to listen to these Platters, and he said, I didn't thank anybody. And he said, I want to thank you very much. And I said, well, it's not necessary. It's a pleasure to have you, of course. And uh, so he said, and especially, I want to thank that young man. And he started for the control room. And just as he opened the door, the red light over his head went on. He didn't see it. And the young man said, this is KCNJ Palm Springs. And took a pause. And during the pause, you could distinctly hear this voice say, young man, thanks a lot. Great. Hmm. Then the young man started to read the spot and cracked up, couldn't make it. And the spot went down the drain, and Jack went home, and I went back to my office, and the telephone rang. And it was the client, who was a real estate broker, new in town. And I had sold him the account. It was a firm 52-week deal. We had very few of those. And he said, I thought you told me you ran a professional radio station. I said, I did. 
tell you that, and we do. And he said, then who was that screaming over my spot? And I said, well, it wasn't just anybody off the street. It was, uh, believe it or not, Jeff Benny. And he said, oh, sure, I bet. Well, you're through. None of, none of my business for you anymore, and slammed down the phone. Well, there's one more sub part of this whole darn thing. We, we had always tried to get a gimmick for every real estate man. We had a temperature report. Your mother-in-law is freezing in Pittsburgh. It's 80 in Palm Springs. Buy a house today, you know, that sort of thing. So the biggest real estate broker in Palm Springs had refused to buy from us because we hadn't come up with a suitable gimmick. And I met him on the street the next day, and he said, a fine friend you are. He said, the newest guy in town selling real estate, you give him Jack Benny doing your spots. That is the rumor the man had started. Hmm. Benny did his spots. And he never, um, he, did he ever come back? No, but as a matter of fact, he foundered and left town shortly afterwards. Uh, so. Serves him right. Jack, I think Rochester's over there picking out a gift for you. Yeah, I guess so. I don't want to see me, so let's move on. Oh, Jack! Jack! Hey, it's Don! Hello, Don! Well, hello, Mary. Oh, say, Jack, I just bought you a present, but I felt it was silly to wait until Christmas, so I'm going to give it to you now. Here. For me? A mop? But, Don, what can I do with a mop? This isn't a mop. I just put a handle on it so you wouldn't be embarrassed carrying it home. <laughs> oh, I see. I thought the widow's peak was so you could get into the corners. <laughs> Got in that little bag. Oh, Mary, I'm glad you asked me. Here, here, I'll show it to you. It's the cutest thing you ever saw. What is it, Don? Well, see, it's a little toy merry-go-round. Well, what do you want that for? Well, now, here, let me show you. First, you wind it up, and then you release the lever, and it spins around and plays music. Really? See how it works, Don. Okay.
one. That's the cutest toy I ever saw. Yeah, it's a shame it broke. Oh, that's all right. I'll get another one. Well, I've got to run along now. See you kids later. Bye, Don. So long, Don. Now, Mary, I don't want to be here all day. I'm going to get that other present from my sister. Let's go over to the perfume counter. Well, Jack, I've got some other shopping to do, so I'll meet you there later. All right, Mary. Don't be too long. Yeah, I wonder what kind of perfume I ought to get. Oh, there you are. What? Where is she? <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake. Why do you keep asking me about your wife? I told you I don't know what she looks like. Well, here. I'll show you a picture of her. See? This? <laughs> this is your wife? Yep. <laughs> Seems silly of me to keep looking for her, don't it? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, miss, she must be in the store someplace, so just keep looking and you'll probably find her. I hope not. <laughs> Hello, Rube. Rube? Oh. <laughs> I'd like to get out of here so I can stop running into such silly... Oh, here's a perfume counter. Must be something nice here for my sister. Oh, clerk. Clerk. Uh, what can I do for you? <laughs> hmm. Are you the salesman here? Yeah. You're the salesman here in the perfume department? Don't take my word for it. Smell me. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Thank you. Yeah. Now, what kind of perfume would you like to buy? Well, what kind have you got? I, I, taboo, temptation, shocking, white shoulders, surrender, and you should excuse the expression, my sin. <laughs> Wait a minute. I think, I think my sister likes taboo... But I don't know whether to get it for her or not. <laughs> taboo or not taboo, that is the question. <laughs> hmm. I made that up myself. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. Everybody says I'm another Milton Boyle. <laughs> Your, your face. Your, your face does look a little like a kinescope. Now, let's, uh, let's see some other perfumes, please. Okay. We have some very nice imported ones. Evening in Paris. Uh-huh. Midnight in Madrid. Uh-huh. Here's a domestic one. Morning in the smog. <laughs> Oh, are they, are they bottling it now? Why not? We got enough of it. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, there you are, Jack. Yeah, I thought I'd stop here and get some perfume for Florence. Clerk, what's that? Oh, this is a very fashionable odor. It's called Eau Jude I'll spray a little on you. Say, that does smell nice. Yeah. And it's got penicillin in it to fight off virus X. <laughs> not a bad idea, you know. You Say, Jack, here's a perfume your sister Florence might like. L'eau de la vie crayon. 
Lo de la vie Creole. What does that mean? Aroma of freshly sharpened pencil. <laughs> Oh, you're no help. Imagine putting a clerk like you behind a perfume counter. Oh, this ain't my regular job. I just sell perfume during the Christmas rush. I thought so. What is your regular job? I'm a goose girl at Hollywood Park. <laughs> oh, come on, Mary. I've had enough of this guy. Hey, what's that? Well, we've been here all day, and it's closing time. You mean they're closing the store now? Yes. Jack, look out! You're afraid of here! gentlemen, care food packages have been improved and increased with more meats and fats that mean health to hungry children and families overseas. Twenty-two and one-half pounds of life-giving food for $10. Delivery guaranteed. Send your contribution to nonprofit care, Los Angeles or New York. That's C-A-R-E, care, Los Angeles or New York. We were out for General Foods and Jello for ten years, uh-huh. and Lucky Strike came after then. Lucky Strike sponsored Jack and the Benny Show for fifteen years. They were the greatest longevity of any client on the show. General Foods being ten years for Jello, fifteen years for Lucky Strike. It's amazing. You think back, Jack Benny had as his sponsor Jello for ten years and uh, Lucky Strike for fifteen years, and today. Now, here in the 1980s, you're lucky if you get a sponsor to pick up a 30-second commercial during a television special. That's right. No longevity at all. My, how times have changed. Yeah, really have. But you see, the sponsors took pride in the programming in those days. Now, there was always the hue and cry. I'll editorialize for a second here. Good. Always the hue and cry that once they got the network programming out of the hands of the sponsors, the audiences would have better programming. And eventually, through the 50s and the 60s, the programming moved away from the sponsors who really produced the shows through their advertising agency, or most of them. You got it. To the point where now the networks are producing the shows or paying for the shows to be produced, and the sponsors really don't have any interest in it other than the sheer numbers they're getting out, That's out right. there. Whereas in the old days, and you were there with the Jello and with the Lucky Strike thing, I believe that the audience in their response to the sponsor, fortified the sponsor and kept his interest in presenting that program. I think your analysis is very well taken, and I don't think anybody can dispute it. Gee, Mary, this Christmas rush is awful, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, look how crowded this bus is. Hey, Ruth! Ruth! Huh? How are you? How about you? I'm fine, fine. You ever find your wife? Who do you think is driving the bus? <laughs> Oh, well, tell Chloe to let me off at the next corner. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, next Sunday, two hours before my own show on the same network, the Actors' Company will present The Man Who Came to Dinner, 
with Charles Boyer, Mel Farrar, Henry Fonda, John Garfield, Gene Kelly, Dorothy McGuire, Gregory Peck, Rosalind Russell, and yours truly, Jack Benny. I'm sure you'll enjoy the show. And another thing, ladies and gentlemen, the next time we meet, it will be Christmas Day. So on behalf of my sponsor, my cast, and my entire staff, I want to take this opportunity to wish each and every one of you a happy and joyous holiday season. Dennis Day and a day in the life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned for the Amos and Andy show, which follows immediately. March, 1835, Paris, France. Dear Aaron, I have thought long about idea. It is the best way. I accept your proposition. By the time you read letter, I and Raya will be on ship to Quebec. I will bring one pound of my inheritance, rest arriving on ship this summer as we have arranged. We expect reliable guide to wait for us in Quebec. I will send letter when we reach land in America. Doskoroi Strechi, Countess Sorina Maria Derzinskaya Zubov. We must pack, little sister. It is time to go to America. Don't be fooled. Danger is coming. Premiering soon on your favorite podcast app, Burning Gotham, the new scripted audio fiction podcast set in 1835 New York City. Subscribe to this audio feed to learn more or go to burninggotham.com. This is Ronald Coleman, inviting you to radio's most dramatic half-hour, Favorite Story. On Tuesday, December 20th, Clark Gable and Sylvia Ashley were married at a ranch in Solvang, California. It was the fourth marriage for both of them. They divorced in 1952. The next day, Samson and Delilah, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, and starring Hedy Lamarr and Victor Mature, was released. It would earn more than $9 million at the box office, the highest grossing film of 1950. Meanwhile, on Friday, December 23rd, the New York Stock Exchange rose to its highest level since August of 1946. While Pope Pius XII 
invited all Protestants and Jews to return to the one true church in order to unite against militant atheism. Protestant and Jewish leaders said they had no intention of accepting the invitation. This week's favorite story is the choice of no one person, but of everyone in the English-speaking world. It embodies the spirit and the beauty of Christmas more than any other writing in our language. Our sponsor sends it to you as a special Christmas gift. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Starring in the role of Ebenezer Scrooge is your favorite story host, Ronald Coleman. Mr. Coleman is supported by an all-star cast in the special production of Dickens' Christmas Carol, the world's favorite Christmas story. singing here now get away before I take a stick to you all of you get away the December 24th issue of the Saturday Evening Post featured articles on the Berlin blockade fiction on the galaxy's outer limit and editorials on political advisor David Niles dubbed Harry Truman's mystery man the cover of the New York Daily News had a story on the U.S. barring ships from entering Chinese waters, while the Los Angeles Times told of a boy skier who was found frozen to death and a forecast of holiday snow for much of the country. Is Ebenezer Scrooge, and at the time of which I speak was Christmas, and the year of our Lord 1843. It was cold, bleak, biting weather. In my counting house, where I sat working busily over my ledgers, the fog came pouring in at every chink and keyhole. But I remember noting with silent glee that it had been a good year, and I was a much richer man. The city clocks had only just struck three, but already it was quite dark, and I had lit a candle to see by. My clerk had also lit a candle. The miserable wretch was warming his hands by it, <laughs> wasting good time and money. I was just about to reprimand him when the door opened with a clatter. Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save now you. Close that door. Do you want to freeze us out? Oh, I'm sorry, Uncle. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And what reason have you to be merry? Huh? Heaven knows you're poor enough. Well, then what reason have you to be sour? You're rich enough. This is a place of business, nephew. I'll thank you to leave us alone. Oh, now, don't be angry, Uncle. Ah, what else can I be when I live in such a world of fools? Merry Christmas. Humbug! What does it mean but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older? But not an hour richer. If I had my way, every fool who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Now, get out. Oh, Uncle Ebenezer, keep if you'll just... Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Oh, but that's just it. You don't keep it. I came to ask you to have dinner with us tomorrow. Thank you, nephew. I'll starve first. But why? We don't want anything from you. We ask nothing of you. Really? Not even a gift for your charming wife? A bauble for your pretty little child? Oh, oh come. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry you don't understand, Uncle. I came here purely out of the Christmas spirit. 
And when you go, would you please take it with you? Now, good night, nephew. Good night, sir. Merry Christmas. Humbug! Mr. Scrooge, sir. Well, Cratchit, why aren't you working at your desk? If you please, sir, there's a gentleman to see you about a charity. Charity? Time for closing. Uh, that's what I told him, sir. Good evening, he... good evening, sir. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago this very night. Jack Benny handled radio as good or better than anybody, than any of the comedians. Because he knew just the things that he did. He made use of, of, of pauses and of weights, like Jack Benny going over to Ronald Coleman's house. He borrowed a cup of sugar, and he went over to Ronald. Well, when Jack Benny goes to Ronald Coleman's house, he goes there. He goes down eight steps. Walks on the sidewalk, and he's carrying the cup. And after that, as the man passes him and drops ten cents in the cup, and you hear the ten cents drop, and Jack says thank you. Then he walks again and walks up eight steps, rings the bell. There was no hurry with Jackie. He he he, he knew how to use these weights and knew how to use radio. And everything Jack Benny did, he he he'd hold on to. He had the Maxwell car. And and he had the bear. I forget the bear's name. And he two things like when he went down into the vault, and he had this crocodile down there, or the man living there for sixty years that never, you know, the most, the worst. But he, it, it was fun. See, in radio, you could visualize everything yourself, like my vault scenes were easier to do on radio than in television. Now, the reason my character sustained so many years, like you say, how could things go on and on? I played a character that included all the faults and the frailties of mankind. See, every family had somebody like me. Either they had an uncle who was stingy, or one who thought he was very sexy and he wasn't. So every family has that kind of a person. The different characterizations, you know, we made Phil Harris a sort of a smart-alecky guy. He either left a pool room or a bar or a girl. Nearly every good comedian has good timing. They, they couldn't be good without it. Burns has great timing. Ed Wynn had the greatest. Gracie Allen had probably the greatest. She was the great of all time when it came to timing. You have to have real good timing or you can't exist as a comedian. And I would see to it that the material I gave them almost fit their characters personally and particularly their speaking voices. On Christmas Day, 
the Czech government outlawed all people who fled the country during the 1948 communist coup, while Cary Grant and Betsy Drake were married in a private ceremony. At 5 p.m. Eastern Time, CBS put on a star-studded holiday rendition of The Man Who Came to Dinner. Jack Benny played the male title role in this screwball comedy. Holiday specials were a network tradition, and Benny was no stranger to them. Hello, everybody. This is John Garfield. By way of wishing you all a very Merry Christmas, we of the Actors Company bring you an extra special holiday present. George Kaufman and Morse Hart's Broadway hit, The Man Who Came to Dinner, starring Jack Benny, Charles Boyer, Gene Kelly, Dorothy McGuire, Gregory Peck, and Rosalind Russell, with Henry Fonda as narrator, directed by Mel Ferrer. Hot Point Holiday Hour. This is Marvin Miller speaking for Hot Point, one of the world's great leaders in the development and manufacture of quality electrical appliances, who brings you Hollywood's distinguished actors' company in The Man Who Came to Dinner, with warm-hearted wishes for a Merry Christmas by more than 10,000 Hot Point dealers and distributors and the many thousands of employees who make and sell Hot Point, America's fastest-growing line of electric appliances, all electric kitchens and home laundry equipment. And now, on with the Hot Point holiday hour and the man who came to dinner. Transcribe your narrator, Henry Fonda. Have you ever had a guest drop in at your house for dinner and stay for two weeks? I mean, aside from your relatives. There might be a better way to upset a household, but they haven't discovered one yet. Anyway, that's what our story is all about. Did you happen to see this week's Time magazine? Well, I got a copy here. Let me read it to you. Quote, Caustic, Sheridan Whiteside, critic, lecturer, wit, radio orator, intimate friend of the great and near great, Last week found his celebrated wit no weapon with which to combat a fractured hip. The luxury-loving Mr. Whiteside, trekking across the country on one of his annual lecture tours, met his Waterloo in the shape of a small piece of ice on the doorstep of Mr. and Mrs. Ernest Stanley of Massalia, Ohio. Result? Canceled lectures and disappointment to thousands of adoring club women in Omaha, Denver, and Points West. Further result, the idol of the airways rests until further notice in the home of surprise, Mr. and Mrs. Stanley. Possibility, Christmas may be postponed this year. Miss Preen, Miss Preen, is Mr. Whiteside coming out? Yes, Mrs. Stanley, we're getting his wheelchair ready. Oh. Will somebody please get that phone? Oh, dear. Sarah, see who's at the door while I answer the phone. Yes, ma'am. I'm coming, I guess we need some pillows. Just a moment, Miss Preen, until I answer the phone. Hello? Oh, yes, Mr. Whiteside is staying Ms. here. Miss Preen, did you get the pillows? Not yet, Dr. Bradley. I'm sorry, but we're very busy. Now you'll have to call me later. Goodbye. Miss Preen, if the pillows aren't K-pot, we'll have to get rubber foam. Mr. Whiteside doesn't like feathers. It, it was the expressman again, Mr. Stanley. Two more boxes for Mr. Whiteside. Oh. A crate from Alaska with two penguins in it. 
And an octopus from William Beebe. Oh, and a piano came this morning from Arthur Rubenstein. What about the pillows? We'll need at least four of them for the wheelchair. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Sarah, run upstairs and get two more pillows off yes, Mr. Stanley's yes. bed. Yes, Dr. Bradley. Mr. Whiteside wants a dozen bottles of Saratoga spring water, a copy of Bartlett's quotations, and a box of Pine Brothers cough drops. Hello? Oh, hello, Clara. Yes, the phone's been going all day. Yes, I know. Daisy. He just never goes to dinner anywhere. And then this had to happen. Poor Mr. Whiteside. Daisy, will you please give me a moment of your attention? Just a minute, Ernest, dear. I'm so sorry, Clara. Daisy, I must get to the office. I'll speak to you later, Clara. Goodbye. Daisy, I'm sure it's a great honor, Sheridan Whiteside in our house, but it is a little upsetting. Phone going all the time, doorbell ringing, messengers. Come yet. Well, they're on their way, Miss Cutler. Oh, Ernest, this is Miss Cutler, Mr. Whiteside's secretary. How do you do? How do you do? May I move this chair? <gasps> you mean he's coming out now? He is indeed. Oh, Sarah, Sarah? Yes, ma'am. Mr. Whiteside's coming out. Oh, Ernest. <laughs> well, here we are, merry and bright. <laughs> Miss Breen, wheel our little patient out. <laughs> Mr. Whiteside, these are your hosts. Oh, <laughs> good morning, Mr. Whiteside. I'm Mrs. Ernest Stanley, remember? And this is Mr. Stanley. How do you do, Mr. Whiteside? I, I hope that you're better. Thank you. I am suing you for $150,000. You, you mean because you fell on our steps, Mr. Whiteside? Uh, Jerry Giesler will explain it to you in court. <laughs> And now, Mr. Stanley, I shall require the exclusive use of this room as well as that drafty sewer which you call the library. Well, what do you mean, sir? My diction is excellent. I would suggest you have your ears blown. <laughs> Mr. Whiteside, if I may say... You may not... At 7 p.m. Eastern, The Jack Benny Show signed on CBS. This episode was heard by roughly 25 million people. <laughs> Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you go out to Beverly Hills and look in the windows of Jack Benny's house, you will see a very pretty Christmas tree, a picture of peace and serenity. But if you could have been there yesterday, well, why not? <laughs> well, we're almost through trimming the tree, Mary. She was nice of you to come over and help me. Well, if I didn't, you'd never get it done. Say, Jack, shall I put the snow around the bottom now? Not yet. I want to see if the lights are working. I'll hold up the bulbs. When I say ready, you plug it in. Okay. Ready? Ready. Pull it out! Pull it out! Pull it out! <laughs> My goodness. Oh, Jack, why'd you make me shut it off? Those lights were so pretty, especially those two blue ones that kept flashing on and off. Those were my eyes. <laughs> I must have been holding on to a bare wire. Well, it's your own fault. Every time you fool around with electricity, something goes wrong. It does not. I know plenty about electricity. Oh, sure. Remember what happened yesterday when you fixed your doorbell? 
What happened? I pushed the button, roasted a pig in Encino. Oh, stop exaggerating. Anyway, hand me that roll of tape. I'll fix this bare wire right now. Here you are. Thanks. Now, let's see. To insulate a bare wire, you just tape it up like, hmm, like this. There. That ought to be enough tape. All right, Mary, plug it in. Okay. Pull it out! Pull it out! Pull it out! Uh, Jack, what happened? I taped my finger to the wire. That's what happened. Oh, gee, and that time was even prettier than before. What do you mean? Your nose lit up, too. It did not. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Benny, the red-nosed reindeer. All right, all right. Now, let's get this tree finished before the gang gets here. But, Jack, what about the light? Oh, we'll have to let that go until later. Now, hand me one of those candy canes so I can... Oh, Mr. Benny! What is it, Rochester? I baked that cake like you told me to. Good, good. You have enough whipped cream to spell out Merry Christmas? Yeah. Uh, say, boss, how many R's in Mary? Two. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, you better add one. Add one? I better cross one out. I got three. <laughs> well, leave it. It's better than ruining the cake. Okay. Uh, oh, Rochester, will you please take these Christmas tree lights and fix them? Fix them? Yes. I ain't fooling around with electricity. Now, what are you afraid of? I don't want to get hit by nothing I can't hit back. <laughs> oh, Rochester, imagine being afraid of electricity. Suppose Robert Fulton was afraid. He never would have invented the electric light, would he? Jack, what? you're thinking of Thomas Edison. Edison? Well, then what did Robert Fulton do? He wrote Mule Train. <laughs> oh, yes. Now, Rochester, please fix these lights. Okay, okay. Now, let me see. In electricity, there's the electrons and the electrodes, and then there's the positive and the negative, but I ain't positive which one is negative. Hmm. Then there's the atoms. Now, the atoms are supposed to go from the positive to the negative, or maybe they go from the electrons to the electrodes. Then again, maybe they go from Amos to Andy. Rochester. Now, as long as these atoms keep passing each other, everything is all right. But when they meet halfway and start fighting, they're going to turn on anybody who tries to butt in. Rochester, I'm not interested in the scientific details. I just want you to fix those lights. And I promise you, while you're holding the wires, no one in this room will turn on the switch. I know, boss. While I'm holding the wire, you ain't going to turn on the switch. And Miss Livingston ain't going to turn on the switch. Of course not. But way up there at Boulder Dam, there's a little man sitting in a room with thousands of wires all around him. So what? How do I know he ain't going to do something just to break the monotony? Oh, all right. I'll fix it myself. Come on, Mary. Help me finish the tree. Okay, Jack. Hand me that candy cane, will you? Here you are. Da-da-dum-dum, dee-da-da-dum I'll put the cane right next to the drum Santa Claus is coming to town Let's see, where's that star? Deedle-dee-dum, deedle-dum-dee I'll put the star on top of the tree Santa Claus is coming to town Gee, that looks swell, doesn't it? He sees you when you're sleeping He knows when you're away He knows when you've been bad or good So be good for goodness sake So you better watch out You better not cry Mary, you're cute and so am I <laughs> Santa Claus is coming to town. 
Well, Mary, we got all the packages under the tree. It looks nice, doesn't it? Yeah, but you better pick those lights up off the floor before somebody steps on them. Oh, yes. Now, where can I put them? I'll put them here on this chair. Now, Mary, some of the gifts I had sent direct from the store, but there's Phil Harris's present. Put it under the tree. Boy, will he be surprised. But, Jack, how'll he be surprised? You've got toilet water written all over the box. Well, you've got to do that with Phil. When he opens a package and finds a bottle, he never stops to read the label. <laughs> Last year, I gave him a miniature ship and a bottle, and the mask stuck out of his mouth for three days. <laughs> Every time I asked him something, he had to answer me through the crow's nest. <laughs> Believe me, I know what I'm doing. Well, Jack, I guess that does it. The tree's all finished. Yeah. Gee, it looks well. I'm kind of tired. I think I'll sit down for a minute and smoke a Lucky. Mary, have you got a match? No. Oh, say, boss. What is it, Rochester? Are your socks dry yet? I think so. Well, people will be here soon. You better take them off the tree. <laughs> oh, that's right. You take them off, will you, Rochester? I'm tired. I want to sit here a while. Yes, sir. Say, this tree looks awful nice, but it's kind of dark. Oh, no wonder the lights aren't plugged in. I'll fix that. Pull it out! Pull it out! Pull it out! For heaven's sake. Well, what happened this time? I'm sitting on the wire. <laughs> now, as long as you're here, Rochester, give me a match. You don't need it now. Your cigarette is lit. <laughs> oh, yes. Thanks, Rochester. Don't thank me. Thank that little man up at Bold again. <laughs> Never mind. Don't plug that in anymore. I've had enough trouble with it. Come in. Oh, hello, Phil. Hiya, Jackson. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. Well, deck the halls with turnip greens if that ain't a lovely Christmas tree. <laughs> yes, sir. Hey, Jackson, you ought to see the one I've got. It's all decorated with a lot of ornaments, and I got tinsel on it and everything. And then right up on the top, I got a picture of Alice. Alice? Phil, you're supposed to have a picture of Santa Claus. She's Santa Claus to me, Dad. <laughs> I know, I know. Hey, but no kidding, Jackson. I think we got the prettiest tree in Encino. Uh, by the way, Phil, what are you having for Christmas dinner? A roast pig. What? <laughs> I don't know how it happened, but when I went out to feed it this morning, it was cooked standing up. You see, Jack? I told you. I thought you were kidding. So did I. Isn't that strange? What are you two mumbling about? Nothing, nothing. Hey, Phil, what do you got in that package there? Oh, I almost forgot, Jackson. It's, uh, it's a present for you. For me? Yeah. Me and the boys the band all chipped in and got it for you. Well, thanks, Phil. I'll put it under the tree. No, 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 you don't. Go ahead, open it up now. Okay. Gee, it's certainly nice of you and the boys. Oh, Phil, thanks. Gee, a beautiful turtleneck sweater. Oh, gee. Look inside of it, Jackson. Inside? Oh, Phil. Uh, what is it, Jack? A turtle. <laughs> I only worked with him, I think, once or twice when he went into television. Mm -hmm. I didn't go. Was there any reason for that? No reason, no. I was doing all right myself. I had Page. my own show mm -hmm. to yeah. show you what kind of a man Jack Benny was. Mm -hmm. Jack Benny let me do comedy exactly right following him. Mm -hmm. 
So you can imagine what I had going in, what kind of account I had going in. I had the highest rating in the world going in, the best rating. Absolutely. And I'm doing comedy. But I mean, what other guy? And then I'm running through the alley after they go to CBS. <laughs> I'm running through the alley to warm my audience up. Mm -hmm. And he's let me off, puts me on the first 15 minutes mm -hmm. so that I can go get out of there and go and, and start my own show. That's a pretty nice guy, isn't it? I would say. Sure, he, he was doing it. You were both at NBC initially. And then and he, he went to CBS. Then he went over to CBS, which was a couple blocks And it's a block down. away, yeah. a block and a half away. I was seven years on my own program yeah. with Alice, yeah. I say my own. And I think four or five of those... I was on Jack's, mm -hmm. too, at mm the -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. Sit down on this chair and relax, eh? huh? Go ahead, Phil, sit down. Thanks, Jackson. Are you comfortable, Phil? Sure. Good, good. Mary, push in the plug. Oh, Jack. <laughs> you wouldn't dare. Hand me the plug. I'll give it to him myself. Hey, Jackson, what about my present? Just sit where you are. You'll get it. You'll get it. It's a surprise. Mary, watch it, Joe. One, two... Three. <laughs> Phil. Phil, don't you feel anything? No, why? Hmm. Well, what about the surprise? What's the matter? Uh, we're having a little trouble at Boulder Dam. <laughs> Mary, I can't understand what went wrong. Phil, stand up a minute. Okay. Now, let's see. There must be something wrong with this thing. Pull it out! Pull it out! Pull it out! <laughs> mm, a fine thing to do on a guy on Christmas Eve. Well, it's your own fault for trying to play a trick on Phil. Oh, so that's it, eh, Jackson? Trying to give me a high hot foot. <laughs> oh, Phil, I was just trying... Pull it out! Pull it! Jack, that's the doorbell. Uh-oh. Come in. Oh, hello, Don. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. Hey, Merry, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas Don. Yeah, come on in, fellas. Oh, you brought the sportsman with you. Merry Christmas, boys. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure glad you dropped in. Say, Don, did you get many nice presents this year? I sure did, Mary. I couldn't wait. I've opened them already. You have? What'd you get, Don? Well, I got some gold cufflinks, a moving picture camera, a television set, a golf ball, and a diamond wristwatch. Well. Thanks for the golf ball, Jack. <laughs> You're welcome, Don. You do play golf, don't you? No. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, you really ought to take it up, Don. It's great exercise for a fellow like you. And there's some beautiful courses around here. Oh, that's fine. You give a guy one golf ball, and right away you want him to join a country club. Well? Why don't you give him a flea and tell him to go out and buy a dog? <laughs> buy a dog, buy a dog. Now, look, Mary. Well, Jack, the boys and I have to be running along. Well, Don, can't you stay a little longer? Ah, uh, we'd like to, Jack, but the sportsmen have to rush over to the Ambassador Hotel. You know, they're appearing at the Coconut Grove. Oh, yes. And say, Jack, why don't we go over there one night this week? Oh, we will, Mary, we will. Jack, you should have been there last night. The boys did a novelty number for the holiday season that was really wonderful. They called it Yule Train. Oh, you mean Mule Train? No, 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 Jack. Yeah. Yule Train. <laughs> oh, Yule Train. Say, that's clever. How does it go, Don? Well, come on, boys. Let's have it. Train rider in the storm. Here we are. 
Well, you had insisted on the comedy commercial right from the beginning. Right from the very first show. When you had the sportsmen on the, was it the Lucky Strike program where they came in? That was Jell-O, Lucky Strike, everything, yeah. Well, you wrote most of those, didn't you? With my writers, with my writers, yeah, sure. We wrote every one of them. When we started for Jell-O, the Jell-O commercials saved Jell-O because Jell-O was going out of business almost on account of Knox Gelatin was beating mm-hmm. Jell-O, beating the hell out of them. And so they wanted the comedy commercials, figuring that that could be the one thing that would save it. And by golly, it did. All my writers have been very, very good. I don't remember not having a good writer, but by the same token, the, the same writers have been awfully nice to me because they figure not only am I easy to write for because of the characterizations, but that I'm a help to them because they think I may not be the greatest writer in the world, but they think I'm the greatest editor. And they think I know what to tell them. And I make as many mistakes as anybody else. Sometimes I'll tell them that I don't think this is right for the show, and it turns out great. And I apologize to him. I'd rather apologize and have, a, and have a good show than have a lousy show and say I was right. Don, that was wonderful. We'll be over at the Grove the first chance we get, won't we, Mary? We sure will. Well, that's swell. So long now, kids. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Don. Well, Mary, you're going to stay and have dinner with me, aren't you? Yes, you invited me. Good. Then after dinner, we'll open all the presents. I'll answer the phone, boss. Never mind, Rochester. I'll get it. It's right here. Hello? Now, look, Joe, I haven't got much time, so listen to me. I'm phoning to warn you that my husband's wise to us, and he's on his way over to your house with a gun. So get out of town, Joe. Get out quick. Remember what happened to Charlie. Jack, what's the matter? I don't know. Somebody keeps getting my number by mistake. <laughs> it's the second time it happened. First it was Charlie, and now she thinks I'm Joe. Joe who? I don't know. We'll probably read it in the paper tomorrow. <laughs> oh, Rochester, how soon will dinner be ready? In about ten minutes, boss. Oh, good. Say, Jack, it's a little chilly in here. Don't you think so? Yeah, maybe I ought to put another log on the fire. There we are. Hmm. <clears throat> Gee, this log is heavy. Oh, Rochester! Never mind. (laughs) Thanks, Mary. (laughs) Now, let's sit down and wait until we can... All right, you can stop showing off. (laughs) Now, let's sit down. You know, Mary, sitting here in front of the fireplace, you look like the prettiest girl in the whole world. If I were a painter, I'd take the reflection of the fires dancing in your hair and paint the loveliest... There's somebody at the door. Well, answer, Grandma Moses. You can paint my hair later. Yeah. Coming! Coming! Yes? Good evening, sir. I'm selling Christmas cookies to raise funds for the Girl Scouts. Christmas cookies? Well, you see, I... Oh, you're Jack Benny, aren't you? Yes. Well, it would be silly of you to buy any. You bake them for us. That's right. How did you know I baked those cookies? 
All the gingerbread men have blue eyes. Oh. Well, I'll buy some anyway. I'll take a dozen. How much are they? Twenty-five cents. You mean you only make a penny profit? <laughs> a penny on twelve cookies? If we break any, we're dead. Well, just be careful. By the way, what's your name, young lady? Joan. Oh, that's a nice name. Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Mary, I just bought some cookies. I'll put them on the, on the tree here. Who'd you buy them from? A girl who came to the door. Her name is Joan. Cute, too. You'd think her father would dress her a little better. <laughs> Mary always sort of ran my life, even though she wasn't supposedly married to me. When Dennis came in, you knew he was always vague about something. As long as I'm staying here, I better call my maid and tell her I won't be home. Okay. Hello? Hello, Pauline. This is Miss Livingston. Well, I won't be home for dinner, so I thought you'd like to know you could have... Pauline, are you still crying? Pauline, you've got to get a grip on yourself. You've been carrying on like this all week. Now, look, he's married on his way to Honolulu, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Goodbye. What's wrong, Mary? Oh, that maid of mine. Just because Clark Gable got married, she's been crying for five days. <laughs> five days? Hey, that's ridiculous. Certainly, I got over it in two. <laughs> Everybody makes such a fuss about Gable. Mary, let me ask you something. What's Clark Gable got that I... No. <laughs> no, I'd be a fool to throw you a lead like that. <laughs> you sure would. Hello, Mary. Hello, Mr. Benny. Merry Christmas. Oh, Dennis. I didn't see you. When did you get here? I came in with Phil. <laughs> with Phil? That was quite a while ago. Where have you been? Well, I sneaked upstairs and put your Christmas present under your pillow. Oh, what took you so long? I fell asleep. <laughs> oh. Say, Mr. Benny, I'd like to thank you for the present you sent me, but I'm all confused. Confused? Why? All the packages got mixed up and the tags fell off, and I don't know who sent me what. Oh, all the cards fell off? Yeah. Well, look, kid, uh, did you, uh, uh, did you get a wristwatch? Oh, a beautiful one, solid gold. Well, take my card and put it on that. Now, let's... Uh... Wait a minute. Huh? Dennis, I'll tell you what Jack gave you. What else did you get? A portable radio, a cigarette lighter, a candid camera, a silk bathrobe, a golf ball... Bingo. <laughs> Mary. Dennis, Jack gave you that golf ball. Oh! I thought it was kind of funny about Mr. Benny giving me the wristwatch. Why? On the back is engraved to Dennis for Mother and Dad. <laughs> Look, Dennis, on Christmas, it isn't what you get that counts. It's the spirit in which it was given. Every year he says the same thing. <laughs> Certainly I say it because it's true. More people felt that way than... Oh, Mr. Benny, dinner's ready! Where are you? Oh, pardon <laughs> Anything can happen. 
happen on Christmas Day, you know. <laughs> good, good. Come on, Mary, we'll go to dinner. Uh, Dennis, do you want to have dinner with us? Oh, yeah, that'd be swell. And after dinner, we can all sit around the fire and... Ahem, <clears throat> ahem. Dennis. Dennis, come here a minute. Yes, sir. Over here. Now, look, kid. There's an old saying. Two is company and three is a crowd. You know what I mean? Yeah, but how can we get rid of, rid of Mary? <laughs> Nearly loused that one up. <laughs> well, all right, Rochester. There'll be the three of us for dinner. Come on, kids. Yeah, I'm hungry. Oh, so am I. I hope Rochester has those big raw carrots. I love them. I like the small carrots. I like the big ones. We always argue about that every <laughs> time. Now, Mary, you sit here. And Dennis, you sit over there. There we are. Now, Rochester, you can get the... Dennis, what happened? I rolled off the chair. I had the golf ball in my back pocket. <laughs> no. Rochester, we're waiting. Coming, boss, coming! Uh, well, Rochester, it's been a very nice Christmas Eve. The gang dropped in, we had a quiet dinner, and now they've gone home. Believe me, I'm ready for bed. Yes, sir. Uh, wait a minute, boss. I'll fluff up your pillow for you. Mm. What's the matter, Rochester? There's a package under here. Oh, yes, it's from Dennis. It's my Christmas present. Well, open it. Open it. Okay. Oh, well, this is lovely. A beautiful electric alarm clock. And instead of numbers around the face, it has 12 letters that spell out Jackson Benny. Yeah, sure is nice. Well, I might as well start using it right now. Rochester, you set it to the right time, and I'll plug it in. Okay. Uh, it's 11.30 now, so I'll set it to... Pull it out! Pull it out! Pull it out! <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Rochester. I didn't mean... Rochester. Rochester. Oh, my goodness. Rochester, speak to me! <laughs> what are you laughing at? The lights lit up on the Christmas tree. Oh, good, good. Merry Christmas, Rochester. Merry Christmas, boss. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Day will sing Schubert's Ave Maria. Hey, hey, hey. 
Christmas, everybody. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. May 1st, 1835. It's a cold and rainy moving day. Every renter in New York is out on the street looking for lodging. Most of the city's quarter million live below Houston Street in buildings, four stories or smaller. But construction is booming. Rich and ragged with furniture, wagons, carts, drays, ropes, canvases, straw packers, porters, and beer haulers. White, yellow, and black occupy the streets from east to west, north to south. Everyone I spoke to on the subject complained of this custom as most annoying, but all assured me it was unavoidable for renters. 
more than one of my New York friends have bought or built houses solely to avoid this annual inconvenience. New people are pouring onto New York's dangerously overcrowded streets by the thousands. It seemed to me that the city was fine before some awful calamity. I said, Colonel, what in heaven is the matter? Everyone was pitching out their furniture and packing it up. He laughed and said this was the general moving day. Seemed kind of a frolic, as if they were changing houses just for the fun. Eh, so the well goes. It would take a good deal to get me out of my log house. But yeah, I understand many persons move each year. Rich and poor, many come to earn an honest living. Others, for more nefarious reasons. And it's the perfect place to begin. Coming soon, Burning Gotham, a new scripted audio fiction series about the fastest growing city in the world and the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed or go to burninggotham.com. None whatsoever. The shows were put together by Jack and the writers. Uh, Jack was an idea man. He would have ideas for shows that he thought were good, and he'd tell them to the writers, and the writers would develop them. And then, when we got into rehearsal, uh, Jack was a man with a blue pencil because he, he was a great editor of material, getting material out that he felt wouldn't pay off or was not good for the show or the particular members on the show. And his judgment never failed. But the nice part about Jack was that he would never get so adamant that if the writers felt that the idea they had and the treatment they had was thing that would pay off, why well, he'd say, well, I can be wrong, so let's try it. But nine times out of ten, Jack would be proven correct. So that his judgment of what was good for the show, for him, for all the members of the cast, was darn near infallible. And uh, he was uh, very broad-minded uh, with the whole thing, and he was a very generous man uh, in uh, the way he built his supporting people up, which was one of the things that made Jack Benny so great. And one of the things that made the Jack Benny show so great was the fact that the supporting people on the show were built up by Benny. Now, this was contrary to some other uh, top-flight comedians, uh, who I'll not mention their names at this time, but I also worked with, and uh, if a supporting player got a laugh line in the, sh in the rehearsal, that supporting player never had that line on the show. The star took the laugh line. So that uh, one of the things that made the Benny Show pay off so beautifully for everybody was the fact that Jack realized that the bigger he could make the supporting people on the show, the bigger it made the show, the greater comedian, the more popular comedian it made Jack. As the curtain closed on 1949, Jack Benny had his most lucrative year to date. CBS was now the number one network in the country, and both were poised for big things in the oncoming TV era. 
Benny's January 1950 rating would rise again to 25.6. Well, kids, here we are at the end of another year. And it brings a warm glow to my heart having all of you who have been with me so many years gathered here in my dressing room. Oh, Jack, that's sweet. I feel that I'm a very fortunate man to have such capable people and such true friends. Oh, Jackson. <laughs> Not only are we bound together in friendship, but the quality of your individual performances has been a personal demonstration of your loyalty to me. Well, thanks, Jack. So to you, my associates, as well as friends, I just want to say in all sincerity that I'm proud of each and every one of you. Last year, our hooper was down and he spit in our eye. <laughs> well, that brings our look at Christmas time 1949 with Jack Benny to a close. Although we'll be moving on, you shouldn't worry. Jack will still be around the periphery in January. In a moment, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone returns. Somebody ought to set Jack Benny straight about how to make a movie because he's at it again. When you join him later on today, CBS Radio's misguided matinee idol will attempt his own version of a famous movie. To make it even better, Hollywood producer Stanley Kramer, who made the movie, will be right there when he does. For a hilarious example of how not to make a motion picture, hear the Jack Benny Show later today on most of these same stations. Henry Morgan and Mitch Miller will be around following Jack Benny. Henry Morgan is host on the fast and funny guessing game, Says Who? His star-studded panel of experts spark one laugh after another as they try to identify memory-teasing mystery voices. And speaking of stars, you'll find an hour of fast and funny conversation with the biggest name stars of Hollywood and Broadway waiting for you on CBS Radio's Mitch Miller Show tonight. And now, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Maybe it's much too early in the game. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's February of 1958, and CBS is launching two new westerns. The first, Frontier Gentleman, would receive critical acclaim and is fondly remembered by collectors today. But we'll focus on the second one, a forgotten gem that ran just 16 episodes, but would have perhaps in another era had a chance to do much bigger things. It was called Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. The reading material used in today's episode was Sunday Nights at 7 by Jack and Joan Benny, On the Air by John Dunning, and Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. On the interview front, Jack Benny, Dennis Day, Phil Harris, Frank Nelson, and Don Wilson were with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Mel Allen, Mel Blanc and Vincent Price were with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these at goldenage-wtic.org. Jack Benny, George Burns, Phil Harris, Frank Nelson, and Don Wilson were also interviewed by Jack Carney. Dennis Day and Dick Joy spoke with John Dunning for his 71KNUS program from Denver. And Don Quinn was interviewed by Owen Cunningham in 1951. But in 
face I stand one little chance Here comes the jackpot question in advance Selected music featured in today's episode was Somewhere in My Memory by John Williams and What Are You Doing New Year's Eve by Nancy Wilson. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio soap opera set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 135 will usher in the new year by focusing on Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. It's a rustic winter western that's perfect for January. This episode will be available beginning January 1st, 2023, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until January 1st, 2023, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 134. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and happy holidays. New Year's Eve.